0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vincent. All right, if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 21. We're going to look at the last two verses of John chapter 21, the only two verses that we haven't looked at uh, during our study in the gospel of John. John chapter 21, verse 24, it says, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That, that, that closing paragraph there ties in with what he had said in uh, the end of chapter 20 that um, there, there were plenty of things that could have been written, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so uh, while we would love to speculate about the things that could have been written, uh, that John knows about that he chose not to write. Uh, what I do want to do today is to kind of spend some time recapping what we've what we've looked at over the past year and a half um, and and just kind of remind ourselves of some of the truths that we've seen um, use it as a springboard uh, to wrap up this study and then uh, as we continue to move into a, a different section of God's word uh, as a church family um, we've we've this is number uh, fifty seven in our sermon series on the Gospel of John. That doesn't count our application Sunday weeks. And so almost a full year, just over a full year of Sundays, throw in a few standalone sermons and a few application Sundays, and that gets us through a year and a half worth uh, of being in the Gospel of John. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about what I'm going to remember most from our study Um, And I want to do that chapter by chapter. And so I've just written down a couple of things. I've got it all in one sheet like normal. So we're not going to spend any extra time than what we would normally uh, do. But I do feel like it would be helpful uh, because it was helpful for me. And I'm the one who studied through it and taught it to even go back and remind myself of where we've been over the last year and a half, uh, what we've been able to cover and what God's been able to teach us. So um, as we look into uh, chapter one of John, John, uh, we spent the, we spent more time in chapter one than we spent in any other chapter um, because it's so theologically rich in, in talking about who Jesus is, right? Um, we also used it to kind of uh, kick off what, what the purpose of our study was even going to be, right? And so it goes to what he says in chapter 20. We tied it in with chapter one that basically this gospel is not just for new believers, right? Like it's for all of us. Uh, It's for all believers, and it's meant to help us uh, believe more and more and more, uh, that that rapid reaction would be to trust him. Um, In in probably chapter 2, maybe chapter 3, I started putting at the top of every week's uh, notes that this book is about believing for life, that the calculated recollection to start believing and to keep believing would help us Reduce the amount of time that it takes for us to trust Him when things get difficult in our life. Uh, that our rapid reaction would be to trust Him, um, and so we saw that in chapter one, uh, right from the very beginning, uh, as we began to see who Jesus was and who John the Baptist even was in light of Jesus' ministry. So, um, next next slide has uh, three three key things I think from chapter one. Uh, the first being that God is Jesus. Uh, we spend so much time, I think, talking about Jesus being God, that we, we spend a lot of time trying to argue for the divinity of Jesus, trying to find uh, proof text to show that Jesus believed that he was God. But once we've established that Jesus is God, then the opposite is true, that God is Jesus. And we can flip that sentence around. And, and what does that mean for us? Well, that means that everything that we see Jesus doing is a reflection of who God is. And so that's super helpful for us because— in, in human format, that gives us this great example to look to. This is what the perfect image of God is, right? Like we talk about ourselves being created in the image of God, uh, but we're a flawed uh, picture of who God is um, because of our sin. Jesus is the perfect image of God, uh, and he possesses all the divinity that goes with that, right? And so as we've seen through this study, man, everything that Jesus does is what God would do in this situation because Jesus is God which therefore makes it true that God is Jesus. Um, and chapter one really spends a lot of time talking about, are we going to reject or embrace this light uh, that Jesus is portrayed as? He, he comes into the darkness. He comes to dispel the darkness. Um, will we embrace him? Will we commit ourselves to him? Or will we reject him? And we see two different parties through the gospel of John, right? We've got the disciples who are constantly believing more in Jesus as things happen, as things are unveiled as things get hard and challenging, they keep believing in him more. Whereas the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they begin to reject him more, right? Like it's just constantly uh, this hatred, this rejection is building uh, towards Jesus throughout the gospel study. That's chapter one. And it kinda ends with John the Baptist and his ministry. and, And what's his role in the gospel, right? His role is to point people to Jesus, right? And, and he's constantly talking about, am I going to make much of Jesus or am I going to make much of myself? And he's having to even convince those that follow him, hey, we're all about making much of Jesus, right? And he'll even go on later in the study to show he has to decrease so that Jesus can increase. And that's such a challenge to me. Am I going to live my life in such a way where I try to make much of me or make much of him? And that says that has such <laughs> kind of like daily referen- referencing. Um, in my job place is, is what I'm doing meant to promote myself or is it meant to promote Jesus? The things that I do in my home, things that I do in my church, is it meant to make much of me or to make much of Jesus? Do I want people seeing Jesus or do I want people remembering me when they come in contact? Right. John was all about, Hey, I want you to remember Jesus. I want you to see Jesus in me and I want to be willing to, to, to decrease so that he can increase in my life. Chapter 2, we get into uh, two kind of really important stories, I think, right off the bat here in our study. The first one being that wedding scene where Jesus performs that first miracle at Cana. And then the temple cleansing piece where he kind of comes in and rocks the boat and, and kicks the money changers out. That that wedding piece um, stood out to me, and what I'm going to remember most from it is um, Mary coming and kind of asking Jesus to do something according to her timing, according to her will, <clears throat> and Jesus being like, look, I've got separate purposes than you have. I've got I've got other plans than, than what you have. And um, he, he still ends up doing this miracle, but it's such a reminder to us about his plans and his purposes being outside of our plans and purposes sometimes. And then in the midst of that, we, you know, we had that sermon about um, – filling it to the brim that picture of those servants who were asked to go fill those water jugs up and and jesus was going to work the miracle and the passage makes the point that they went and filled them to the brim right i've i've taught i've taught this multiple times at trinity i've taught it to our fourth and fifth graders in chapel i've taught it to um, our high school football team both times i had individuals and i said hey before I get started, can you go fill this cup of water up? Right. And, and so they, they went and they came back and every single one that did this illustration for me did it perfectly because they came back and uh, either had like <clears throat> like half a cup of water or um, maybe three fourths cup of water. Nobody filled the cup up. Right. And so it was a great way for me to kind of talk about, um, just our perspective on excellence. Like when, when somebody in authority asks us to do something, that we do it to the max, right? And, and we talked about the fact that when we serve Jesus, when we do uh, things for him, we don't want to do it half-heartedly. We don't want to do it uh, enough to kind of get by. Like we want to do it to the max. We want to do it to the brim. And we've really used this as kind of a, a mantra at our school with my staff, that we want to embrace this from the top down. That like, if my boss asks me to do something, and we're going to do it to the brim in the middle school. Um, we're going to do it to the brim in the upper elementary school. We're going to, we're going to do it to the max. And then I've kind of placed that expectation on my teachers that, Hey, if I ask you to do something and I want you to do it to the brim, I want you to fill it up, fill it up to the max. Um, and do it in, in, in response to wanting to obey Jesus, not obey me. Right. Like, you know, in obedience to authorities that have been placed over you, let's do it with excellence. Right. And then when you get to that temple cleansing story, just the idea of being angry about the right things, Um, that Jesus shows anger towards uh, a desire to be zealous for the things of God. And when the things of God were being minimized in that setting, uh, Jesus isn't okay with it, right? And he steps in and he, he shares the criticism with those who were involved. And what was the response? They were dismissing the criticism because they were skeptical of Jesus as the source, right? And I even challenged us, Hey, when criticism comes your way, don't dismiss it so quickly because there may be some truth that's mixed in there. Even if you think the source isn't valid, if, if, the, if the Pharisees had just paused for a second and just reflected on what Jesus was saying about their actions and attitudes, they would have certainly felt some conviction. Even if they weren't ready to accept Jesus, there would have been at least some awareness that, hey, what we're doing is not right. Um, and I've tried to use that even in my context at work, too, that— if I'm criticized by a teacher or a parent or a, even a student that I want to pause and say, okay, is there, you know, where's the truth that in this criticism? Cause I'm a believer that there's probably always some truth when criticism comes our way and we can find it and we can be um, productive with it and we can make it profitable for us. Even if the source isn't somebody that we're ready to trust yet. Um, chapter three, Nicodemus and the bronze serpent um, discussion. This is maybe one of the more familiar chapters of John because of John 3.16 being contained there. Um, But Nicodemus shows up, uh, wants to know about the kingdom of God, right? And in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Um, I think what's so clear in this passage is Jesus begins then to refer to the Old Testament, refers to the bronze serpent and the picture of the Israelites having to look to that serpent who had been lifted up for salvation, that he was going to then be the greater bronze serpent who was going to be lifted up as well. And we were going to have to turn our eyes to him. That salvation comes from turning to him and abandoning all other hopes of salvation. Nicodemus had built his life on his own righteousness, uh, as many of the Pharisees had done, right? And so um, this passage kind of destroys everything that Nicodemus had been thinking about salvation, that his good works were going to translate into redemption. And Jesus uh, transforms that. Jesus has a full-on blown discussion with him about what salvation looks like, about God loving the world, about God sending his only son to be that sacrifice so that salvation uh, can take place in our life. Which then brings us to chapter four, where we see again, two more stories. We see the the woman at the well, and then we see the dying boy, the, the official son who is sick at the end of the story. And I challenged you in this passage about looking for ways to minister when we're tired and when we're busy because the disciples and Jesus are kind of physically exhausted from their their teaching ministry and what they've been doing. You see Jesus stay put because he's tired. You see the disciples go into town to get food. They're busy, right? And they end up interacting with all these people that the woman at the well is going to interact with later in the story except she goes into town saying, you got to come see this guy, right? He's told me everything that I've ever done, right? You got to think that maybe Nathaniel was in that group that was looking for food, the same Nathaniel who was told exactly where he was sitting and thinking when Jesus called him to come be his disciple, right? We don't have any indication that the disciples were uh, busy with conversation about, hey, you're not going to believe who we're getting food for. Right? It's just more like, hey, we got to get some food. We got, you know, we're hungry out here. We got our masters over here too, right? Don't, don't let tiredness and busyness cause us to forget what our big purpose is, and that's to minister to others to tell them about Jesus. Uh, this woman gets the chance to do that, right? But not before her sexual sin is confronted. And we certainly live in a culture, day and age, where sexual sin has becoming, is becoming more and more minimized, right? It's more and more acceptable, to, to do it differently than what God has commanded uh, for that. And and this passage reminds us that I mean, Jesus still takes that very seriously, um, that that he's not uh, throwing previous commands out the window and, hey, we can move forward in a different, it's a new, it's a new era, it's a new day and age. Um, this reminds us that our, our sins and our choices, they're important to God, and, and he's going to deal with them and he's going to handle them, right? Um, at the end of this chapter, this is where, Uh, The official comes looking for Jesus, wants his son healed. Jesus says, you can go home. Your son is healed, right? Um, And there's this tension there about, do I need you to come with me, or can I just bank on the fact that you've said it, right? And the way we see that story play out is that the official leaves believing that his son has been healed before he can ever see it. It's kind of foreshadowing what Jesus is going to ask of all of us in the conversation that he has with Thomas at the end of the chapter, right? Blessed are those who believe without seeing, right? And that official is maybe one of the first examples of that. He goes home believing that his son is going to be fine, even though Jesus doesn't go with him, even though he doesn't have any verification that he's been healed. And then we we find that little nugget there that that John includes and says, um, the the official finds out the the hour that his son was healed was the very hour that Jesus said, your son's fine, right? Um, And so the, the official acted on that, believed it without seeing it, and then eventually gets to see it. Right? This passage also kind of debunks some of those evangelical myths that we have about sharing the gospel Going back to the woman at the well Sometimes we think that uh, sharing the gospel has to be this formula that we follow Well, the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus looks way different than the conversation he has with the woman at the well And yet he's calling both to salvation, right? What it shows us is that each context is going to be different How we talk about Jesus with somebody might look different than how we talk about him with somebody else the important thing is that we're talking about Jesus, right? And that he's our, he's our satisfaction. He's our, he's, our, um, he's our salvation, right? Um, we don't have to be friends or share interests with the people that we share the gospel with. Jesus has nothing in common with this Samaritan woman, right? They don't share any common interest, And yet the, the words that he speaks is words of life, right? And it, and it grips her heart and changes her uh, because that's what the power of the gospel is, um, and, and we don't have to worry about our past being something that will hinder us from being heard. Right. I hear time and time again, people say, you know, I can't share the gospel with my family because my family knows all these things that I've, I've done before. And this woman goes into town and says, you guys know me, you know, everything that I've done. And so does this guy yet. He's never met me before. You got to come talk to him. Right. And they respond to her despite her past history. They respond to her. It's a reminder that I mean, God will use our past sins to bring salvation to people, not allow that to hinder people from being saved. Chapter five, the man at the pool. This guy's been a cripple for for his life. Um, And and this passage reminds us that God always acts with timing and purpose Um, because I was really blown away when I realized this guy had been sitting in Jerusalem by this pool for much of his life and Jesus being a good Jewish man would have come to Jerusalem time and time and time again in his life and he would have always had the power to heal this man, right? He always had the power to heal this man and he doesn't choose to do it until this specific day, on this specific Sabbath. Why? Because the miracle had a bigger purpose than just fixing this guy physically. He wanted to teach this massive lesson about how do we value the Sabbath and how should we not overvalue it, right? Man, it's such a reminder to me that I mean, there could be things that we are desiring God to do, wanting God to do, that he's fully capable of doing. And it may take years, it may take decades for him to finally do it. But we can trust that when he does it, there is a much bigger purpose probably than just the thing that he's doing. Um, that it's going to affect people in ways that we maybe never could have anticipated. This guy probably would have loved to have been healed decades before Jesus chooses to heal him. Um, But God wanted the Pharisees and the religious leaders that were alive at that day, at that time, to see it, to hear it, to experience it, so that he could drive home this truth about the Sabbath, right? It's a good reminder, too, in chapter 5, if your Bible study stops impacting you, you might want to sound the alarm. Um, Because Jesus calls these guys out for their study in Scripture and the lack of impact it's having on them. John chapter 5, verse 39 You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life, right? Jesus doesn't tell these guys, hey, if you would just start reading the Bible more, things would be a lot better for you. Now he gets to them and says, you guys keep reading the Bible, but you don't do anything with it. You don't do anything with it, right? Like you say that it has the words of life. You say that um, it, it's it's the source of, of everything and yet you you don't do anything with it right you're not coming to me so that you can have life you're rejecting me and, and that's just that's convicting to me because um, I don't I don't believe that I need more time in the word I believe I need to do more with my time in the word right um, my, my problem is not spending enough time in the word my problem is not doing enough with the time that I do spend Right? And we have to be very careful that, that we don't fall, fall, trap, fall into this trap of thinking that, okay, I've read my Bible, I'm good. Like, I've done my good Christian duty. And if it's not doing something in your life, then, then Jesus would have the same conversation potentially with us. You know, he, would, he would call us out for the fact that, hey, you, you say that the Scriptures have the life. You search them, but you're not coming to me. You're not letting it change you. You're not doing anything. Um, chapter 6, Feeding the 5,000 and the silencing of the storm. Um, Every day is an opportunity to apply what you're learning. Jesus helps his disciples apply what he's been teaching them, right? Because remember we talked about how he creates this hopeless scenario. He kind of forces them. He he questions them, the guys that were from that area, and says, hey, where do we get food around here? Just so he can hear them say, there is no place to get food around here, right? He sends the disciples out to ask everybody, hey, do y'all have any food that we can use? He knows there's not any food to use besides this little boy's stuff, right? But he wants them to see how dire the situation is so that they can learn the lesson of turning to him. He's the only hope in those type of situations, right? Um, After that, uh, you know, our guys mentioned this in their discussion this morning. Um, There's this crisis that doesn't feel like a crisis. It feels like success because the people want to respond to Jesus and they want to make him king. Right? After eating all of his food, they want to make him king. And the disciples would have been very tempted to fall into that 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 rally. And Jesus says, Ah, we're gonna leave here. We're gonna go out into this the middle of the sea, and you're gonna experience a storm, and that's gonna feel very bad and, and very wrong. And and why is Jesus doing this? And and what what's really happening is Jesus is taking them away from a storm. Right? This storm of success and pride and uh, something that was very contrary to his plan, Jesus spares them from that. And I think I'll, I'll never forget that when I come to this story again, you know, in future times, to remember the fact that this storm had a purpose and that was to spare them from the the uprising of the people who were wanting to drive Jesus into a totally different direction than what he was here for. Um, and Jesus spares his disciples from being caught up in that. Um, and then th- this passage kind of closed out with what Adam was talking about Uh, where Peter says, look, you've got the words of life. Um, Where would we go? You know, where would we go if we went anywhere else? There there would still be uh, a a wanting in our life because we know you have the words of life. Even if it's hard to understand sometimes, you do have uh, the words of life, right? Chapter 7, the Feast of Booths. Um, This is where Jesus gets the chance to cheat. Jesus gets the chance to teach. And this is where... His credentials are being called into question, uh, where he was born is being called into question, right? And so there's this um, this big emphasis on we are going to reject Jesus because we don't think that he, he meets our expectations, right? And it's a reminder to us, I man, we got to be real careful that we don't uh, reject Jesus or try to leave Jesus for unfulfilled expectations, right? This, the Pharisees are just like, eh, we don't think that you were born in a place that— the messiah would come from and and we don't like this about you we don't like this about you so we're just not gonna listen to anything you have to say because we had some expectations about you that you're just not fulfilling and there's gonna be times where jesus doesn't meet our expectations where he he fails to live up to how we think he should operate And, and the world's gonna say that's when you leave him that's when you bail on him because he's not doing it he's not taking care of you that's where satan comes in and says um He's, he's trying to hold you back, right? Like, like you want to eat of this tree, and, and, and he's telling you no because it would be good for you. Um, this is where we don't leave Jesus for silly reasons. Um, he has the words of life, like Peter said. It may be hard at times. It may be confusing at times, but we can't leave him. Chapter 8, Woman at the Well. Um, sorry, not the woman at the well. The the stoning of the woman or the potential stoning of the woman. We talked about how this may not have been in the original manuscripts, that John may have not actually written this, but we said that it's still very applicable and helpful because it it only reinforces what Scripture has to say. It Doesn't say anything new, right? So if we take it out, we don't we're not hurt by it. If we leave it in, we're not we're not hurt by it either. Like we're helped by it. So we can we can kind of talk about it as a good thing, even if it's not uh, something that was originally in Scripture. Um, but I was I was really challenged by this passage because I think. We have to be careful that we don't use God's law and his standards and his rules and his commands to serve our own agendas, right? We don't get to use it to make ourselves feel better by judging other people for what they're doing because that's certainly what's kind of happening here. They're trying to trap Jesus. They identify this woman who's doing something that they're not doing and so they can condemn her. But then, as soon as Jesus says, well, yeah, let's get the law out. Let's talk about things that you're doing too. And whether you're free from it or not, they're convicted by that right? And so we have to be careful that we don't use the law to make ourselves feel better by judging other people with it. We also have to make sure that we don't use the law in such a way where we're trying to stone ourselves when Jesus has forgiven us, right? No more condemnation. It is finished on the cross. We don't have to hurl stones at ourselves when we make a mistake, when we fail, when we don't do something right. You know, we don't have to beat ourselves up. But sometimes Jesus, you know, sometimes in, in today's Christian culture, we, we've created an environment that says you can be saved and continue in sin, that that you're forgiven. And so, you know, God will overlook that. God will forgive that. But Jesus is very clear with this woman. After telling her to put the stones away, that nobody's going to stone her, that she is expected to go and sin no more, right? She is expected to be changed radically by her encounter with Jesus, and we believe that she was. Chapter 9 is about the blind man being healed. Um Remember the disciples questioned whether this guy or whether parents or somebody had done something to make him deserve this. And Jesus is very clear. I mean, sometimes pain comes into our life and it has nothing to do with sin. Now, sometimes it does have to do with sin, right? Sometimes God does discipline his children. Sometimes God does uh, judge sin that's in our life. Um, But a lot of times that's not the case. A lot of times he's got some other bigger purpose for that. And that's exactly what was happening with this guy. Um, Jesus says this guy was born blind so that God could get glory from it and he gets glory great glory from this chapter. Um, and 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 it's a reminder again to not be quick to dismiss God's work just because it doesn't meet our expectations, right? This is where we really try to drop home the fact that this blind man is running around and he can see and instead of being enamored with that, the Pharisees are like, "Can you tell us again what day this occurred on?" Right? Like this was on this was on the Sabbath day? Well, we can't even accept this. We can't even take this as as being valid because this would never happen on a Sabbath day, right? Instead of being just floored, hey, maybe we've misunderstood the Sabbath because this guy we know was blind and now we know he can see and that just doesn't happen. They're so caught up in the the Sabbath piece of it, right? And So um, we have to be careful, especially being sometimes ultra conservative in our theology, that we don't miss some things that God's doing because it doesn't feel as conservative maybe as we want it to, right? Like I just, I don't ever want to be guilty of dismissing God and what he is and isn't capable of doing because I've got expectations for how he should work and operate. I want to admit that sometimes I can be wrong about that, right? That I can be, I can be missing the mark in what God may or may not want to be doing. Um, Chapter 10, the good shepherd chapter. Um, I think walking away from this, anytime we hear Jesus being our shepherd, I think I'm always going to remember just the idea that We have to follow him in the valley and in the pastures that Psalm 23, he's leading us through the valley of the shadow of death so that we can be in the green pastures. Um, that it's not always going to be green pastures. It's not always going to be still waters. Um, Jesus continues to teach that through the gospel of John, right? As he talks with his disciples about expecting persecution, expecting trials and temptations. Um, but he's our shepherd through all of it. Um, he's our good shepherd through all of it. And he brings us through those things to the other side. And I want us to be able to remember that. Chapter 11 is about Lazarus and his resurrection. And this this was a passage that I had never really looked at as in-depth as we did and was so convicted about all the, the discussion leading up to the resurrection and how important all that was, that Jesus was aware that Lazarus was sick. He was aware that he was dying. And yet it talks about how he intentionally delayed acting, right? He intentionally stayed longer so that Lazarus could die, so that he could then come in and resurrect him, and so uh, things about Jesus could be known that otherwise wouldn't have been known, right? And he talks about how he's thankful the disciples uh, had to see all this, right, had to experience all this because it was good for them, and so, and it's just a reminder to me, because the remember, Mary and Martha come appealing to Jesus and say, hey, you love Lazarus and he is sick, come do something about it because you love him, and we think sometimes that When we cry out to God that if he loves us, he'll have to do it the way that we expect him to do it. And yet what we find is Jesus is showing, no, I love you guys. I love you guys more than you even realize. And that's why I'm going to do it this way. All right? Um, It is super encouraging to see what Martha's perspective was, though. uh, Even though she's hurt, maybe even frustrated at the fact that her brother is dead, she tells Jesus, "Um, I don't know what you're going to do, but I know you can do anything. Right. Um, If you'd have been here, I think you could have healed him. I don't know what you're about to do, but I know you can do anything. I think that's the perspective we have to maintain, too, is that that's that's a sign of us putting our faith and trust in him, is that we're expecting him to do things outside of our expectations. Chapter 12, uh, Jesus' feet are anointed. Um, It was a reminder to us to look for ways to give and not to collect because you've got Judas who's so concerned about the cost of the ointment whereas Jesus is very celebratory about how Mary was willing to make sacrifices there. Martha's serving, giving of her uh, time and energy. Uh, Mary is sacrificing from a financial standpoint um, and giving. And and we want to be those type of people that are known for that. We were talking for the service and, um, you know, so thankful for how we as a church are continuing to give even in the midst of this pandemic, right? Because, You talk to any business or any uh, entity out there, they've been impacted financially. And I know people in our church have probably been impacted financially. Um, And yet what we're seeing in our giving this year is this continued trend of us giving more every month since this has started. Not less. We're giving more than when this first started. Uh, We're giving more than we committed to give at the beginning of the year. Um, which is huge because, as we've told you, the more you give, the more we can give away, which means those who are being impacted financially are receiving more of our funding because of your faithfulness to give, and that's something we want to continue to do. We want to continue to give, realizing that it's helping those who have been impacted. We want to be Mary, who's willing to sacrifice the expensive ointment at the feet of Jesus so that others can hear about Jesus and not be Judas, who's who's so meticulous with the budget saying, now we got to hang on to this. We've got to do something different with this so that he could benefit or profit from it, right? Um, chapter 13, washing of the disciples' feet, right? We talked about serving others even when you deserve it and they don't. Jesus should have had his feet washed. The disciples certainly don't deserve to have their feet washed, but Jesus flips the script and he's doing the, the serving here, right? And we talked about doing the jobs that nobody else wants to do, that we can be a great example of, of Jesus in our places of employment our, our, our homes when we're willing to do what nobody else wants to do it's, a, it's an attitude of humility it's an attitude of sacrifice and service towards others when we take that type of perspective um, What I love though is in this um, this passage that that we see God's sovereignty over evil throughout it right as they're sitting around washing feet getting ready to do the Lord's Supper Jesus is fully aware of Judas's plan right? He even pulls Judas aside and tells them, now's your time when you can go do this, right? He gives parameters for when Judas can even carry out his betrayal. Certainly shows us how in control Jesus always is. Chapter 14, troubled hearts. This is where we started to talk about our anxiousness, our anxiety, and what we do with it, right? That Jesus tells his disciples, expect times where you're going to be anxious. And this was like right around the beginning of the year. And we had no idea that all this opportunity for anxiousness was right on the cusp of what we were about to experience as a church. But Jesus says, Let your hearts not be troubled, right? Don't let them be troubled because there's going to be times where they're going to be tempted to be troubled and you're going to have to fight against it, right? So we expect these moments, but we don't settle for anxiety. We don't give into it. We don't tolerate it. Instead, we let Scripture speak to our worried hearts. We find this peace that comes from the assurance of salvation. Remember in chapter 14, Jesus talks about um, if we love him, we'll keep his commands. So we can find this assurance, not that we're saved by our good works, but that our good works show evidence that we are saved. And and we show our love to him by being obedient to him. And, And our troubled hearts are helped by the fact that Jesus says, you know, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I'm preparing this place for you, I'm certainly coming back for you. Um, And then I love, you know, the end of that chapter in chapter 14, Uh, you know, something that i had never seen before and something that you would miss if you aren't studying scripture verse by verse. Uh, But in John chapter 14, in the midst of all this discussion about finding peace and not being troubled. Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father rise and let us go from here. Right. Jesus rallies the troops and says, let's go meet Satan on his, on his battleground. Right. We're not going to run. We're not going to hide. We're going to be obedient to the father and I'm going to go glorify him by meeting Judas in the garden where he knows to find me. Right. All you can see is God's control over the situation, right? There's no spiraling uh, of, of the situation out of his control. In fact, It's just becoming more clear that he's in control. Um, Chapter 15, they get into some discussion about the vine and the branches, and um, he's the true vine, and we talked about being ready for pruning to bear more fruit, Um, that there's going to be times where difficult things happen in our life, and it's meant to be a pruning process so that we can bear more fruit. Uh, We come through these difficulties being able to honor and glorify God, and so we're able to bear more fruit than we were previously. Um, But remember, in this chapter, this is where Jesus talks about the persecution that's coming. And he tells them, I'm telling you this so that you won't fall away. I'm telling you that this persecution is coming so that when it comes, you will endure it. And so we want to expect these type of times. We want to expect troubling, anxious moments. And and by expecting it, we will then endure it versus falling away because of it. Um, Chapter 16, we talked about sorrowful advantages. It's where Jesus talks about how he's going to have to leave but it's going to be an advantage to the disciples because the Holy Spirit's going to come, right? And so we talked about asking the right questions when sorrow comes. What is it that Jesus is looking to do? What's the advantage that is going to be created in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this sorrow? Jesus always has some type of plan um, at play. And that's where he uses the illustration about the pregnancy, right, that it's a temporary thing. Our pain is temporary, and then on the other side of it, it is worth it because of what we come out bearing from it, Right. Be ready for pruning. Uh, Be ready for these sorrowful times. Find the advantages in the midst of it. Chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. This is where we talked about being in the world, but not of it. And that balance between isolating ourselves, right? Um, And cutting ourselves off completely. Uh, Inoculating ourselves where no protective measures are taken. Right. And then insulating ourselves where we're in the world enough to be impactful towards it, but not influenced by it. Um, And I think this is this is also true for how we're handling this pandemic, too. Right. Like we have to be careful that we don't isolate ourselves so much that we cut ourselves off completely from any type of fellowship or any type of ministry. But we also can't be people who are just so cavalier that we don't listen to anything, that we just do what we want to do. Right, that There's this happy medium of where we can insulate ourselves. We can take protective, protective measures for what we need specifically ourselves individually, but not cut ourselves off completely. And, that, and that's certainly true for how we just live in the world on any given year, not just this year, any given year. We don't want to isolate or so immerse ourselves that we lose all influence, that we find a healthy balance in there. Um, and then in this passage, we also talked about just the unity that God desires for us, this observable unity where Christians are able to come together and be the light to the world even if we don't agree on everything um, and that we're always pursuing unity with each other so that we have um, this observable peace that non-believers can look to. Um, and and that, that's something that we want to pursue with other churches in the area even if we don't agree on everything. Um, I was telling our, our C group this week, we had a local church in the area. A uh, pastor called me up and said, um, hey, we want to pour into your ministry. Um, this is a church that we wouldn't agree with theologically, most likely. Uh, maybe not even methodology-wise. But he just said, hey, I'm going to write you guys a check for $1,000. Y'all do whatever you want to with it. Just do whatever you want to with it. We just we want we want you guys to know we love you. We believe in you guys. We're thankful for your presence in the kingdom. Here's some money for you guys to, to use as a church family. To me, that's observable unity when a church who's not like us is still willing to say, We're on the same team because we love Jesus and we follow Jesus, right? And that's what we want. We want that observable unity with other believers. Um, Chapter 18, betrayal and trail of Jesus. Uh, When life is spiraling, we don't have to worry and think that he's uh, losing control. He remains in control. We see that in the garden where things are just pressing in, and yet we talked about how Jesus knew exactly where to take band so that judas could find them right he's completely in control in this and he's even controlling the disciples faith in that he makes sure they don't get arrested because the passage says he didn't want to lose any of them and the implication there is that their faith wasn't ready to be tested that way and jesus preserves their faith by keeping them from being arrested so that they can later be arrested and stand firm in their faith um certainly what rings true to me in the midst of the trial of jesus is that he is perfect He is absolutely perfect. He's bounced around from official to official. They can't find anything wrong. And it's certainly a reminder to us that he is our perfect righteousness. When people wanted to kill him, they couldn't find a reason to kill him. And when they're even questioned, why do you want to kill him? What's their response? Just kill him. Right? But why? Just kill him. Right? He's perfect. He's perfect. Chapter 19, the crucifixion. Strong reminder to us that there's no absolute authority for any man, right? Pilate thinks he has authority; Jesus has all of it, right? The cross ends up being where everything can be finished for anyone and everyone, right? All tribe, nations, and tongues, every language can be forgiven at the cross. Even the worst sinner, right? Even this thief on the cross um, can can be forgiven. Man, brag on one of our seventh graders. He had to write a short story for his end of the year project. He he took the thief on the cross and gave him this big backstory um, of how he had rejected Jesus for his life, had been turned against Jesus, but had a conversation with Jesus and saw Jesus at the temple, cleansing the temple and how it had made an impact on him. And then when he's on the cross looking at Jesus, everything kind of comes together, right? Like complete, like, him just making some of that up, but man, it just added a whole depth to that story. That I was like, man, that's really cool. Like, I, I wonder what experience this this guy did have with Jesus prior to what kind of um, uh, exposure did he have to Jesus? What was it that really resonated to him to where he looked at Jesus and said, "Hey, remember me in paradise." Um, but obviously, he's a thief, bad sinner, right? But he can be forgiven at the cross, which lets us know that we too can be. Um, chapter twenty, the resurrection. Uh, what I would want you to remember from this chapter is that the, the tomb was mostly empty, right? That the, um, the, the burial clothes that were found there were so key to the disciples believing in the resurrection and not believing that the body had been stolen, right? Those burial clothes affirmed the resurrection story because they were undisturbed, right? Um, we talked about educating our current experiences with past faithful accounts, going into that story with Thomas where Jesus says, uh, those who believe without seeing, and those are the ones who are blessed because, um, you know, we don't have the benefit of seeing all this stuff that the disciples did. And we're asked to believe it 2,000 years later. Um, and that's where I challenged you, man. The more we can know about God's faithfulness in the past, the more that we will keep believing Him today. And then, chapter 21, the miraculous catch passage where um, Jesus is. Revealing himself post-resurrection. We talked about our failures being miracles, too, that um, these expertise fishermen can't catch a fish to save their life. Um, Jesus now allows them to make this miraculous catch at the very end of their fishing trip, Um, and he had basically been working a miracle all night long and keeping them from catching fish, right? And so we think the miracle is the catch of the fish. There's two miracles here. It's all one big miracle. He wasn't letting them catch fish so that they could catch fish through his provision. And it's a reminder to us that we're going to experience times of failures too. God is working a miracle in the midst of those failures as well. He's studying us up. He's prepping us for something. Right. And then the last part of that chapter, um, is, I think that's all the slides for us. Um, the last part of that chapter is our, um, our call to be intentional with the life that, that God has given to us right? The life that God has given to us, that, um, our life is different from others and we should expect it to be different because Jesus says, look, John's life's going to look different than yours, Peter. It just is. His destiny is going to look different as far as his earthly destiny. Um, be content with the story that I've given to you and glorify him with, glorify me with that story. And so I've just been specifically challenged by that recently because I think we're so prone to compare our situations to other people's situations. Um, to want sometimes somebody else's story versus the story that's been given to us, um, but for us to embrace the uniqueness of the story that God has given to us and how we get to uniquely glorify him, whether whether we've been a cripple for most of our life, whether we've been blind for most of our life, right? Uh, whether things have been withheld from us for most of our life or whether God has given us everything that we've ever wanted in life, right? All of us have a unique story. All of us have a unique opportunity to make much of him with the story that he's given to us. Hopefully that was helpful to you to kind of go back and recap that. I've packaged it all now in a place where you can easily reference that at a later time. If you feel like your memory of what we've studied in the gospel of John is waning a little bit. I know a lot of people are questioning like, what are we doing next? Where are we going next? Um, I am uh, anticipating and hoping that maybe for the next couple of weeks, we'll do uh, kind of a topical series that I'm still kind of working through in my mind. Um, If that doesn't materialize, then we'll go straight into what I anticipate us doing after that. Um, But if we do this topical series, it'll probably take a couple of weeks for us to cover that. Um, And then the next thing would be what I really want us to do is to go and take a a look at the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Um, I think I shared this maybe in the past, but to kind of correlate with what we talked about, knowing some of Israel's past and God's faithfulness in the past, man, the minor prophets are an area that... Most of us have either never studied or if we have, we, we very easily forget it because we don't, we don't get a lot of spiral review with the minor prophets. We just don't go to them very frequently. So, um, but I want to do it in such a way where typically when we come out of a long study, we do something very quick. You know, we've gone through the Book of Romans chapter by chapter. We've done the Book of Hebrews chapter by chapter. We did the, um, the, the Jude letter because um, it is just one chapter. Um, so what we're gonna do with the minor prophets is we're gonna cover like a different minor prophet every week. Um so we're gonna kind of look at a big picture overview, and then I'll probably teach one sermon from one specific passage in that chapter, but kind of give you an overview of what's a, what's that minor prophet about, just so that we have a better idea of what, what God was doing during that time period in Israel. And then after we finish that, which will probably take, I think there's like 12 minor prophets, so probably 12 weeks. Um, after we finish that, we're going to jump into um, one of the New Testament letters, probably. It's been a while since we've been in a New Testament letter, like, an, like a, a real official. The book of Revelation is obviously that, but it's a different genre. So I don't think we've really done New Testament letter besides First and Second Thessalonians and Jude, besides like Romans being a chapter-by-chapter chapter thing. So um, we'll most likely do that. So that gives you kind of a taste of where we're going. Um, minor prophets coming up, and then we'll go back to the New Testament um, with one of the um, epistles that we find there. So, all right, I'm going to pray for us, not any specific application, I guess, for this week. More so, just a review reminder. Encourage you to kind of hopefully look back through that. Maybe some things that you've forgotten that need to still be implemented. I know with like um, our D groups coming up, you know, we're going back and looking at our goals that we set. Um, so, even today, just kind of being a chance to remind ourselves, what have we learned? What am I doing with that, right? Like we want our Bible study to be impactful and to be life changing, not something that we just check out of the box. So, I um, encourage you to look back through this, pick out some things that stood out to you from today that maybe you had forgotten, and look for ways to implement those things in your life. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you for the study that we've had in the gospel of john this past year and a half i know it's been so fruitful in my own life i pray that it's been fruitful in the lives of others god i pray that it would take root in us and that we would not easily forget uh the things that you've exposed us to help us not to be like the individual who looks into a mirror sees his face and then walks away unchanged god i pray that we would take a deep uh long look at ourselves in the mirror of the gospel of john and we would see areas in our life that need to be changed uh, that need to be different as a result of this study. And so, God, I pray that you would continue to bring about that change as we leave this gospel uh, study behind. God, help us to continually uh, draw to remembrance the things that we've learned. Um, God, I pray that you would even convict us today of things that we've heard once again. And, uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the Word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.